Good morning. <laughs> I hate taking these things off with the microphone on. But I like taking them off, so got that going for me, which is nice. Okay, how we doing? Doing all right? Everybody's in a good mood, I imagine. I'm sure you're all smiling. The kids want to go downstairs. Yeah, go ahead. You can head downstairs. You're not going to want to stick around for the next 40 minutes, so go ahead. <clears throat> Before we get started this morning, um, I want to put this next part of our series on Jesus and the Bible in its uh, proper context. So uh, up on the screen, you're going to see a slide that has a list of the sermon topics from this coming section. So we spent about three months in Jesus foreshadowed in the Old Testament. We're going to spend about four months Jesus on Jesus manifested in the Gospels. And right, okay, good, it's up there. So uh, we've already done Jesus' birth and incarnation. We kind of spent a week and a half on that because we did that last Sunday and then again on Christmas Eve. So if you're following along with us, you should have caught those or you still can catch those if you weren't able to catch them live. Those are available on our church YouTube, church Facebook, and Google Podcast. Uh, podcast. Today we're going to look at Jesus baptized from Matthew chapter 3, and then next week we'll go straight into Matthew chapter 4, Jesus' temptation. Uh, we'll, go, we'll spend just one Sunday on the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we previously spent like three months on the Sermon on the Mount not that long ago, so we're just going to refresh that. We're going to look at Jesus <clears throat> selecting and sending the disciples, his identity from Matthew 16, what he taught about the kingdom of God, Jesus performing miracles, healing the sick, and casting out demons, those will be three separate uh, sermons. Jesus, the friend of sinners, his transfiguration, which is one of my favorite stories. Jesus' high priestly prayer, his triumphal entry, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. The crucifixion and the resurrection will take us right up to Good Friday and Easter. Good timing for that. So this will take us through uh, the spring. Well, into, I should say into the spring, and we'll be doing that. Now, before we get into the rest of that series, next Sunday we will be taking one Sunday off from this series. We'll still be uh, having uh, service, but we like to, it's kind of been our tradition, the first Sunday of the year to try to set some vision for the beginning of the year. And our elders in, this is probably in November, met and kind of had an elder prayer meeting and I think we all agreed and discerned and heard basically the same thing from the Lord that in 2021 as a church we want to make a concerted effort to focus on strength and unity uh, in our congregation. How do we grow strong and grow strong in the Lord and be resilient and focused and disciplined and on also what does unity look like and what are the steps that we need to take to uh, apply the unity that Jesus has already provided for us. We're not trying to attain unity. Jesus has provided unity. We want to remove the obstacles to that. So next week we'll be talking about that. So I want to encourage you, whether you're here in the room or watching us online, could you please uh, make an extra effort to either uh, watch or be present live next Sunday, or if you're unable to do that, make sure you watch or listen to that sermon afterwards because <clears throat> that is a specific message for our congregation, okay? I don't know that I could preach that other places because that's for us. So if you're part of our congregation, please make, it, make an extra effort to either be here or watch it live 
or listen to it afterwards, but get it in your ear hole, all right? Everybody good with that? Okay. Let me pray for us. <laughs> your ears have holes. It's a, it's a thing. Um, all right, let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump into Jesus' baptism. Lord, uh, I just ask Jesus that as we go through this passage today, that our emphasis and our focus would be on you, that we would not make this necessarily about us because it is about you. There's stuff for us in this. There are principles for us to apply, but we are not the main character in this passage. You are the main character in this passage. And I ask that you would keep yourself in your rightful place and put us in our rightful place as those that respond to you. I pray for protection, Jesus, from distraction and confusion, that we would have clarity about what your word teaches in this passage, and I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I think I've made it clear over the years that my wife and I are not from Philadelphia. Um, I know I try to act like I am, but I'm not. And where I'm from, there is this kind of rite of passage that every young boy who's turning into a man goes through. And that rite of passage, I don't know if they, everyone goes through it, but most of my peers and I myself when I was 12 learned how to hunt. When I was 12 years old, in fact, when I was in sixth grade, I had to take a class in school on how to shoot a gun. That was a class we had in school, how to shoot a gun. It was a hunter safety course, and he had to take that to get licensed, and uh, my dad's a big hunter, and so he wanted my brother and I to learn how to hunt, and uh, when I was 12, I had a gun, and uh, I know that's probably shocking to some of you, the thought of a 12-year-old having a gun, but I did. I had guns before I had video games. Video games were a real letdown once you have a shotgun. And so uh, when I was 12 years old, that's when you could legally hunt, and in, where I grew up, we didn't have uh, religious holidays uh, like um, uh, Yom Kippur and uh, things like that. We had Doe Day, which was the first day of Doe season. You got off of school. And if you uh, hunted, you got to go out into the woods and try to kill a mammal. And if you didn't hunt, you just got the day off. So I remember the, uh, I was, learned how to hunt squirrel, which I really liked because they're small and you can shoot multiple squirrel and they're easy to carry. Uh, I remember one day, I don't think it was my first day going out hunting, but I remember going out doe hunting with my dad this one particular uh, day. It wasn't on a Sunday, sorry. You can't hunt on Sunday. Um, but it was a day. <laughs> we went out into the woods. It was cold. We got up so early. The sun was not up. I don't know if you guys know this. 12-year-olds don't like to do that. So I, we got up, like the sun wasn't up, and I think I had hot cocoa because I wasn't drinking coffee yet at that point, and it was so cold, and we went out into this uh, field, and the sun was rising, and we were going to find a spot and sit there and wait for some deer to meet their maker. And it was not very early. The sun had only been up for a little while, and this group of deer ran across us, and we did what hunters do, and I got one. And when we arrived at the deer, that's when the fun began, I was told. <laughs> we had to do something called field dressing the deer, which is where you cut it open and remove its guts. And I did not like that. 
And I kept thinking to myself, when will the fun begin? It's cold, it's early, I'm covered in deer blood and hair. When is the fun gonna begin? I'm sorry for those of you that are like uh, animal lovers. I love them too, they're delicious. Uh, so once we dress, field dress this deer, then I have to drag it behind me through a snowy field, throw it in the back of a pickup truck, and I'm like, now the fun is gonna start. We go home and we have to quarter and kind of butcher this deer, and I'm like still waiting for the fun to start. Well, we finally got to eat the deer, and that was the last time that I went hunting. Got one, experienced it, and I found out I like warmth, and I like cleanliness. And so I didn't hunt after that, but that was a kind of an initiation and a rite of passage for many young men and even young women where I grew up. It was just something that you went through. And I have found that pretty much every culture has these rites of passages or initiations. If you're a a Jewish family, your 12 or 13 year old boys or girls go through something called either a bar mitzvah for the boys or a bat mitzvah for the girls, which is a coming of age ceremony. And the idea behind a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah is you are now responsible for your own actions. Mom and dad aren't responsible for you. Doesn't mean you have to move out or get a job, but now you stand before God as someone who's responsible for your own decisions, and God will assess you based on those decisions. You're responsible before God. For many young Hispanic uh, women, it's not a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah. It's a quinceanera at the age of 15, which is kind of a coming of age ceremony for young women, or Perhaps you're familiar with the idea of a sweet 16. For some people, you hit 16, there is a party for young ladies, and you celebrate that kind of coming of age uh, experience. Found out from my brother and sister in law yesterday that they have a coming of age rite or passage, an initiation in their household when their kids are no longer in need of a pacifier. Uh, the Christmas, they always do this at Christmas time when one of them is getting ready, ready to dump their pacifier. They put the pacifier in their stocking, and then the next morning the pacifier is gone and it's full of presents. And that's something that they do. It is a maturing event, it's a rite of passage, it's an initiation. Now, uh, I have something in, in mind and planned for our kids. Uh, for when they turn 12 years old. So my two sons, Aiden and Josiah, when they turn 12 years old, they're gonna go into the woods with me for three days, just me and, well, so when Aiden turns 12, it'll be just me and Aiden. When Josiah turns 12, it'll just me and Josiah. We're gonna go into the woods for three days and we're gonna talk about and practice uh, a little bit about what it means to be uh, a young man. And I've talked to Aiden about this. Josiah, he doesn't listen. He's only one. He, he just babbles. But I've talked to Aiden about this, that when you turn 12, we're going to go into the woods. And he knows this is coming, and he actually smiles when we talk about it. He's looking forward to it. When you, when you turn 12, we're going to go into the woods. And during that experience, it'll be around the time of his birthday, that's when we're, we're going to kind of say, okay, you're no longer a child. You're now a young man. And then when you're 18... You're a man, man. And that is, it. He, he lights up when we talk about this. I mean, so we've made it clear, listen, you're 10, you're just a kid. 
just be a kid. I'm not going to expect you to be a, an adult. I don't, you don't need to get a job or do any of that stuff. Uh, although he's well on his way to being an adult because he hates going to Target and buying a toy and paying taxes. I mean, he moans about it. But, so he's already there in some ways. But you're, you're 10, just be a kid. You don't have to worry about being an, a young adult or a young man yet. But when that age comes and when we have this kind of initiation moment, the childish ways we need to begin to put behind us and we need to begin to embrace what it means to be a young man, not a full-grown man, a young man from 12 to 18. What does it mean to be a young man? And this will just simply be the initiation into that multi-year experience. I plan the same thing for Josiah. Emma knows that it won't be me taking her into the woods, but she and Kendra will take three days and I think right now they're in negotiations about a spa or a hotel or something like that. Um, I'm not going to teach Emma what it means to become a young woman because I have very little experience with that. But these initiation experiences, many cultures have them. Many people have been through something. You probably could say, yeah, for, in my family it was when you got your first job or it was when you got your driver's license or when you graduated high school. Maybe there was some sort of initiation that you experienced. Many sociologists and psychologists are becoming more and more convinced that uh, the decline in these kind of initiation or coming of age rights is contributing to what we call delayed adolescence. Have you ever met like a 30-year-old that acts like they're still a 15-year-old? Okay, I don't really mean to step on any toes. I hope I don't, but like 50-year-olds um, that spend hours a day playing video games. Okay, just leave it there. Okay, all right. Not directed toward anyone, but uh, this delayed adolescence thing, we used to call it the uh, uh, me first generation when I was a youth pastor. Just like haven't grown up, they're not really providing, they're not really maturing, um, they're not really moving forward. Psychologists and sociologists believe that part of what contributes to that is these lack of uh, rites of passage or initiations. For even like weddings, um, a wedding is a specific ceremony where you make a vow, and part of the vows, traditional wedding vows, is forsaking all others, meaning we're, we're not going to act like we're single anymore. When there's not a wedding ceremony and there's not a statement of that vow, it's no wonder that people who just move in and shack up together still act like they're single, right? Because there's not a clear closing of one chapter and beginning of another chapter, right? So these kind of initiation experiences that people have, these kind of rites of passages, uh, rites of passage, they conclude one season and they begin another season. Well, in the Bible, baptism is a type of initiation experience. In fact, we use the word baptism sometimes as a metaphor for being initiated, we'll say, oh, you're, you're going to experience baptism by fire, meaning you're going to get thrown into the deep end, to mix metaphors a little bit. You're going to get thrown into the deep end. You're going to have to learn on the fly. Lots of, lots of idioms that we use to illustrate this idea. But like, you're going to get thrown into, <laughs> I can't say it in normal words. I only have uh, metaphors for it. Baptism by fire or baptism is this initiation, mean, meaning you're about to experience a change in the dynamics of your life. And there's an expectation that the things that used to work are going to be 
kind of dismissed and put away and you're gonna embrace a new way of living, right? So even just in our culture, we speak of baptism, but in the Bible, a baptism really is an initiation into a new way of living. Now in the Bible, there's different types of baptism and we've taught on this in the past that not all baptisms in the Bible are the same. In Matthew chapter three, John the Baptist got his name, not because he was Baptist, because he predates the Baptist. John the Baptist was baptizing so many people that they referred to him as the Baptist or the baptizer. John the Baptist had a specific message, which was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And when people responded to that message of repentance, he would initiate them into a lifestyle of repentance by baptizing them in the Jordan River. And so many people were responding to John the Baptist's message that crowds would form on the river, people waiting to respond. John the Baptist is one of my favorite figures in the Bible. Um, he was unique. He would, I don't even know that you would hear of him if he lived today because he would be so on the fringe of the movement of the church because people would just reject him as too extreme, uh, holy roller, uh, too focused, you know, not able to relate. But John the Baptist actually chose to live outside of the city and he wore strange clothes and he ate strange food. But because of that level of what I call consecration, he actually had a higher uh, level of influence in the area and among the people than other people who were making disciples, other rabbis. So John the Baptist is baptizing people. And it seems like, and it's implied in Matthew 3, and I'll just paraphrase it. His, his message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And to repent means to stop doing what you've been doing, to turn and do the other, or do the opposite. Um, I found in my life there's a thousand areas a day that need repentance. Sometimes it's little things. It's the way I think about a, t a subject or think about a topic or the way I relate to a person or the way I spend time or the way I spend money where it's just like there's something in my thinking that's off and that's what leads me to these actions or these behaviors. And so Repentance is this lifestyle that John the Baptist is in, he's initiating people into and they come and they get dunked under the water and that being dunked under the, under the water is supposed to represent to them this fresh start where now I've not just repented one time, I'm entering into a lifestyle of repentance. Well, in Matthew 3, this has become such a popular thing that and you know that it's a, it's a popular thing when people start showing up who have no intention of actually doing this in their heart. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other religious experts, they show up, they want John to baptize them because hey, all these, these people they've been teaching are going out to John. And if they wanna stay in, in vogue or they wanna stay in the, in the cycle or in the, in the loop, they need to go do this too. And John the Baptist actually calls them a bunch of snakes you brood of vipers, because he knows they're not there because they want to enter into a lifestyle of repentance. They're there because of social pressure. They're there because all of the people they've been teaching have gone over to John the Baptist because John the Baptist actually has a real message that is changing people and transforming people from the inside out. So John the Baptist calls them a brood of snakes. Well, there's one very famous figure that came and asked John to baptize him, and that is John the Baptist's cousin, Jesus. 
In Matthew chapter 3, we read about the baptism of Jesus. Uh, it's just a few verses. This will be up on the screen. If you have your Bibles at home, crack those open. Or if you have them in the room, crack those open. Uh, I want to encourage you, if you watch at home, I'll look right at the camera. If you watch at home, have a Bible near you, whether it's on your phone or a paper Bible or something, have a Bible near you. Because while we do put most of the stuff up on the screen, um, it's good for you to be familiar with your Bible. I don't want your Bible to collect dust and then you lose familiarity with it. So this is Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan River, coming to John the Baptist to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent Jesus, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. Lighting means staying or remaining on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, this passage teaches us a couple different things and this could go a couple different directions. I want to briefly touch on one thing and spend the rest of our time on uh, another thing. This is a Trinitarian passage. Trinitarian means it refers to the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I love this passage because you see Jesus is being baptized in the water, but when he comes out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus, and then you hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. What we see here is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all active, and they are distinct from one another. One of the misunderstandings that people have about the Trinity is that, oh, God just takes different modes or different forms. Like in the Old Testament, God showed up as a father, but in the Gospels, he just changed his outfit and he was the Jesus. And then in the rest of the New Testament, he changes his outfit again and he's the Holy Spirit. It's just God in three forms or God in three modes. We actually, the, the church in the first and second century threw that out as a heresy called modalism, that God is, there's one God who just takes three different modes, partly because of this passage. This passage does not allow for God changing his costume because he's present in Jesus, present in the Holy Spirit, and present in the Father at the same time. He can't do a costume change here. The Holy Spirit is distinct from Jesus. Jesus is distinct from the Father. The Father's distinct from the Spirit in this passage. So we don't say God in three forms. We say God in three persons. They are equal yet distinct. Each one is God, yet they're distinct from each other. That's all I understand about it. I, can't, I hesitate to go any further because every illustration I could give you is going to have a flaw in it. So I just know that there's one God who exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So what we learn about the Trinity from this passage is the humility of Jesus, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and the affirmation of the Father. That's what I want to look at, is the humility of Jesus in that he submitted to baptism when he didn't need to, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and that that was necessary for even Jesus relied on the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, and the affirmation of, of the Father that comes toward the end when he says, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. So, verses 14 and 15 paint this picture of Jesus being humble. We see that 
John the Baptist tries to prevent Jesus and he says, I need to be baptized by you. Even John the Baptist understands this is not quite right. You're greater than me. And we know that story because I've hit on that several times recently. John the Baptist said, he who will come after me is greater than me because he existed before me. So even John the Baptist knew that Jesus was greater than him. So when Jesus says, John, will you baptize me? He says, I have need to be baptized by you, but do you come to me? And Jesus says to him, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So then John consented or permitted it, depending on the translation you're reading. John the Baptist recognizes that this role seems to be reversed, that the, in this case, the inferior person is baptizing the superior person. John sees no need for Jesus to submit to a rite symbolizing a person's repentance from sin. This is the interesting thing about the dynamics here. John is baptizing people for repentance. Does Jesus have anything to repent of? No. That's what's interesting about this. Jesus does not need to go through this. Not only has Jesus never sinned, he lives this life of exceeding holiness and perfection. There's no need for him to go through this process. So why does he go through it? He goes through this not because he's identifying as a sinner, he is identifying with sinners. Jesus' whole ministry was to come and to identify with us. That's why he became a human being. That's why he had parents. That's why he had to eat food. That's why he had to go to the bathroom. That's why he had friends and family and he lost people and he experienced suffering. And that's why he went through this process. Not because he needed to do it, but we needed him to do it for us. And he says, it's necessary for me to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is identifying with us. He's saying anything they have to do, I'm going to have to do. Not because I need to do it, because they need me to do it for them. Jesus is modeling for us, entering into a lifestyle of repentance, even though he himself didn't need it. This whole baptism seems like it's just as much for us to observe as he models it than it is for him to experience. So this is an act of humility. This is Jesus saying, I don't need to do this, but I'm doing it for your sake. And so... Uh, John went around baptizing people as a sign of repentance from sin. Jesus didn't need to repent. John knows that Jesus doesn't need to repent. Nonetheless, Jesus submits to baptism as a means of fulfilling righteousness. He did not get, uh, receive a baptism of repentance because he was guilty. He received it because he was humble. He went through something that he didn't have to go through because he was humble. This is an example to us of the importance of humility. I've been hitting on this the last couple of weeks and I will probably continue to hit on this because as we pursue unity, humility is the groundwork for that. The humility of Jesus just continues every week as we look through these passages to astonish me. We talk about how he, he left the comforts of heaven to put on a human body and to take that on and to, by taking on a human body, accept all the limitations that a human body has. You have a God who's, everywhere takes on a human body which can only be in one place at a time. You have a God that knows everything becoming a baby who's helpless and it actually says in the Bible that Jesus grew in wisdom and strength and in stature with men so Jesus had to learn which is interesting. So 
he humbles himself and then he continues to hum him, humble himself by going through a baptism that he didn't need to go through just to model this for us. Jesus is the model for humility. If, if we serve a humble God, then what should we be like? Humble, right? If the goal of all of our Christian experience is to become more like Jesus, not more spiritual, not more churchy, but more like Jesus, then where should our discipleship be leading us? It should be leading us toward humility, right? This is a hard one for me, and it's a hard one for many other people because uh, humility is very contrary to our natural inclinations. We like to puff ourselves up. We like to believe that we know better than other people, do better than other people, are better than other people. That's kind of the, the natural way. Jesus is confronting that in this, in this experience here, in this baptism, and he's demonstrating humility, and he's setting an example for his disciples who are gonna come after him, who are gonna have to humble themselves. And this is the interesting thing about humility. All throughout the Bible, we're told to humble ourselves, that this is something that we have responsibility for. You know, humility is not something, oh God, make me humble. What a, that's a dangerous one right there. Because you're reverse delegating. He told you to humble yourself, so when you say humble me, you're already, you got the flow wrong, right? He's, if you were gonna be humbled, you would just listen to him who said, humble yourself, right? Um, he gives you, when you receive the Holy Spirit, it can, when you become a Christian, he, you already have everything in you that's necessary to humble yourself. James says it, the Old Testament says it, it's said multiple times in the Bible, humble yourselves before the Almighty God. As we humble ourselves, this is what we're doing. We don't, that doesn't mean we spit in our own faces, it doesn't mean we hate ourselves, it doesn't mean that we become uh, self-loathing, because again, that's all about yourself, right? Humility is really just understanding yourself correctly or having a sober judgment about yourself, like seeing yourself as you really are. Um, you're not thinking too much of yourself, but also not thinking too little of yourself. You just see yourself like you really are, which is just a piece of dirt made in God's image. You're gonna have hopefully 70, 80 years and then you're gonna die, you're gonna be judged by God, and you have to stand before him and provide some sort of account for your life. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're gonna say, Jesus provides the account of my life. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're gonna to have to say, oh, nuts. Is it too late? Because I lived most of my life self-oriented. So this humility, this uh, humbling, this humble act of Jesus is a model for us to humble ourselves. If Jesus humbled himself and were to be more like Jesus, then we should be humbling ourselves. The second thing we see here is the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in verse 16. After Jesus is baptized, he's coming up out of the water. It says immediately. Immediately he came up out of the water and behold, the heavens were open and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove. And it says lighting on him, it just means resting or remaining on him. Some translations might even say resting or remaining on him. So it says in the passage that right after he comes out of the water, the heavens were open. The heavens were open is a biblical phrase, which means God's about to show you something. So pay attention. When God opens the heavens in the Bible, and it happens several times, he's showing you something about himself. It's kind of this unmistakable experience. In many ways, it's even visible to, uh, to onlookers. It's kind of like, 
top-notch revelation there, that God is opening the heavens and showing you something that's spiritual. In this case, what's happening is the Holy Spirit is descending. I guess we don't know what uh, descending as a dove. Does that mean that the Holy Spirit looked like a dove, or does that mean that the Holy Spirit descended gently the way a dove would descend? We don't know exactly what that means, but we often think of the Holy Spirit as a dove or a flame. In any event, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and rests on Jesus. This is unique because it distinguishes Jesus from all the other people in the Bible before him that ever received the Holy Spirit. Because all throughout the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would descend on people for a moment, for a task, and then withdraw. So you read through some of the prophets of the Old Testament, some of the kings of the Old Testament, uh, Bezalel and Oholiab and the prophets, the 70 prophets that were around Moses and some of the, uh, King Saul said that the Holy Spirit came on him and he prophesied, but then he did not do it again. And so in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would, I guess, come down, land on people, they would do their job, and then the Holy Spirit would withdraw. Jesus is the first person in the Bible where the Holy Spirit comes down and just stays. That makes Jesus unique. That makes Jesus distinct. And Jesus is, paint, well, the author, Matthew, is painting a picture for us here that something new has happened. Now the Holy Spirit is descending and remaining. And then we find as the New Testament unfolds, the Holy Spirit starts to go on the apostles and stay, go on the early church and stay, fill Christians and stay. Does that make sense? There's a new thing happening in the New Testament where the, the presence of the Holy Spirit is not temporary and momentary, but it's, the idea is that it's a sustained experience, that the Holy Spirit remains, that the Holy Spirit stays, and that's distinguishing Jesus from Old Testament figures. He's the first person to ever experience this sustained presence of the Holy Spirit, which is now available to all of us. But notice what Jesus had to do, or notice what Jesus did prior to that. He humbled himself. He embraced a life of repentance, even though he didn't need to, but you and I do need to. And that is followed up by this empowerment from the Holy Spirit. Now, it's possible, many people believe this, and I happen to be one of these people, that this is also a reference to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8 is the story of Noah and the ark. You guys familiar with that story? I know most people probably are. Well, there's this little obscure detail at the end. How did Noah know that he could get off the boat? It stopped raining, and he sent out, first he sent out a raven, and the raven came back because he had nowhere to land because the earth was covered in water. So then he sent a dove, so Noah has this dove. He sends it out three times. He sends the dove out. The dove comes back because the whole earth is covered in water, so there's nowhere for the dove to land. So he has to come back to the boat, and Noah realizes, okay, the earth is still covered in water. We're going to try again in a week. Another seven days pass. This is in Genesis 8. And he sends out the dove, and the dove comes back, but he has a little twig of an olive uh, tree in his mouth, which is where that famous picture of the dove with the olive branch, I think this is part of the Olympics, it's like the international symbol for peace. The dove returns with an olive branch in his mouth, which indicates, that, okay, even though I can't see anything, the dove must have found land somewhere because there's a tree growing, and he brought this back. He waits another week, and then Noah sends the dove out a third time and the dove doesn't come back. And that's how Noah knows, okay, the water's starting to recede. 
Dry land is starting to appear. God's judgment is over. So in Matthew chapter 3, the Holy Spirit is sent from God, lands on Jesus, and does not return to God, which is a picture of God's judgment being completed in Jesus. Jesus is the one that's going to fulfill and receive God's judgment. And in some ways, Jesus is our ark. As long as we're in Jesus, we're safe because he receives the judgment of God that we uh, have earned, and he's our ark. Now, the third thing that we're going to look at really quickly is the affirmation of the Father that takes place in this passage. Jesus has been baptized. He's come up out of the water. The Holy Spirit's descended on him, and then a voice comes out of heaven and says this, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, we actually don't know if everyone heard this or just Jesus heard this. Jesus definitely heard it, but whether the rest of the crowd heard it, we don't know. We do know that a few chapters later in Matthew 17, there's a second time when God speaks from heaven and says basically the same thing. He says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. We call this the transfiguration. And we'll, I'll preach on this in a couple months. But the, the father says, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. And then in that instance, it says other people heard it. But at this instance, we don't know if other people hear it. Which leads me to, oh, and actually at the transfiguration, when the other people hear it, Jesus says to them, this wasn't for my good, it was for your good. You needed to hear that. You needed to hear God tell you to listen to me. But that doesn't happen here. So I kind of believe that this one was kind of a private experience, that he heard it, but not necessarily everyone else. But then later at the transfiguration, the other people around hear it. That God is speaking to Jesus for Jesus' benefit in this instance. This is really similar to what Isaiah prophesied about the Messiah in chapter 42 of Isaiah. He says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, I think that this is a meaningful experience for Jesus and we're going to look at this next week, the temptation of Jesus. But let me just really quickly give you some, a heads up next week. When we get to the temptation of Jesus, this is the first thing that Satan says to Jesus. If you are the son of God, so the first thing, this is literally three verses later, the first thing that Satan does is question what God had just said to Jesus. This is my son whom I love, and then what does Satan say? If you are the son of God, and then he basically says, prove it. We'll get into that more next week. But this affirmation that Jesus receives from the Father, Jesus is roughly 30 years old at this point. He's gone through the childhood. We only have one story from when he was about 12 years old. And then we, he kind of comes on the scene publicly when he's 30 years old. God is saying, you're my son. That's who you are. First, first and foremost, this is your identity. Before we even get into your actions and your behavior, this is the relationship. You are my son. Here's how I feel about you. I love you. You're my beloved son, and I'm really pleased with your actions. I mean, it's this kind of three-part affirmation that the father gives to the son. Now, it would have been commonplace 
for a rite of passage or an initiation to take place for Jesus when he was 12 years old. Like I mentioned earlier, these kind of rites of passages, bar mitzvahs, bat mitzvahs. When Jesus was a roughly 12 or 13 year old boy, there would have been a coming of age ceremony, kind of like a bar mitzvah. And in those ceremonies, the father of the young boy would place his hand on the young boy and would affirm him. He would say words that would encourage him and lift him up. He would say, here's what I see in you. And every little 12 or 13-year-old Jewish boy would go through this process except when they didn't know who the father was or if the father was absent. So in those cases, the boy went through the, went through the procedure but was left unaffirmed. If the father was dead or the father was unknown or there was some question about the paternity, who's the dad, that affirmation was left out. For instance, in a case where the mom was pregnant before she was married, just like Mary, it's likely that Joseph was either dead or not allowed to put his hands on 12 or 13-year-old Jesus and affirm him. He probably never experienced that because even though Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they knew the story and they knew about the Holy Spirit's activity and the conception, the rest of the community didn't know that. They just knew that Mary was pregnant before they got married and Joseph said it wasn't his. And so Jesus probably went through that critical point as a young man and never received that affirmation. That's just part of the culture at the time. We don't know that obviously for sure because there's no passage in the Bible that addresses that. We do know that when Jesus is 12 years old, he was in the temple and he was already calling the temple his father's house. So even he was kind of saying, this is where my real father is at the temple. And uh, we know that G Joseph died, most, well, most likely we, we assume that Joseph died when Jesus was young because when Jesus was crucified, Joseph was nowhere to be found and Jesus asked someone else to take care of his mom after he died. And so it's likely that 12 or 13-year-old young Jesus never had his, a, a biological father lay hands on him and affirm him. So when the, the father speaks and says, you're my son, I love you, I'm pleased with you, that this is a meaningful experience for Jesus. And as I said, later, it's repeated at Jesus' transfiguration. He, God says, this is my son whom I love, and here's the application. God tells us the application. Listen to him. The, the application of this Affirmation here is not that we should necessarily all go and put our hands on our sons and daughters and say we love them and you're well pleased. That's a good thing to do, but that's not what this passage is saying. This passage is just saying if Jesus is God's son, we should be listening to Jesus. I mean, who are we then? If, if, if Jesus has demonstrated humility, been empowered by the Holy Spirit, and now God has spoken from heaven and said, this is my son whom I love with him and well pleased, we ought to be responding to Jesus. We can't dismiss Jesus because when you dismiss Jesus, you're dismissing the Father and you're dismissing the Holy Spirit. The application here is that we should be listening to Jesus and we should be believing what Jesus says. Now, if our goal of our 
Christian life is to become more like Jesus. Look at the model he, we have here. Humility, empowerment, living from the Father's affirmation. This is how we're supposed to follow Jesus. We, we start this process in humility. You have to have some level of humility to even put your faith in Jesus because you're acknowledging, I need a savior. I need someone who's gonna save me and lead me for the rest of my life. So there's an there's a element of humility there that we need to sustain. It's crazy to me how as many people spend more time in their life with Jesus, they decrease in humility. We should be increasing in humility, not decreasing in humility. It's crazy how when we come to Jesus, we know that we're a sinner who needs a savior, but once we've been following Jesus for a little while, we kind of forget that we still need to be saved. And we have not achieved perfection. And I don't think that any of us will. And so we start this process in humility and then we, we go through this, uh, I'll say there's a need for us to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. If Jesus needed to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, why would we think we don't? And so this is a meaningful, important moment where Jesus receives the Holy Spirit. Now that's not to say Jesus didn't have a relationship with the Holy Spirit prior to that, but something different happens at this, uh, at this baptism because the Holy Spirit now remains on him. And so he, Jesus receives the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and he lives from this affirmation of the Father. Because uh, we'll get into the temptation next week and the temptation is all just attacking what the Father had just told him. And Jesus lives from the affirmation of the Father. He doesn't live trying to earn God's love. He realizes that he has God's love. Jesus has not raised a sick person from the dead. Uh, uh, sorry, raised a dead person, healed a sick person. He hasn't walked on water. He hasn't multiplied food. He hasn't preached a good sermon yet. And God is saying, I just love you because you're my son. Not because, man, I really love that thing where you walked on water. I really loved what you did when those Pharisees tried to trick you. God loves them because he's a son. We have to live from uh, this place where we know that God loves us because we're created in his image and because he sent Jesus to die for us. Not because we volunteer or not because we sing well or not because we read the Bible so much. That's not why God loves us. Those are all good things, obviously, but that's not why God loves us. In fact, God doesn't even love us because of us. He loves us because he's just naturally loving. Just love exudes from God. He created us because of love. Some people think God created us because he was lonely. If God's lonely, then he's missing something. He's, he didn't create us because he's lonely. He created us because he's loving. He just overflows with love, and his love over, overflowed in a, an act of creativity where he created humanity so that he could love us because he just loves. So in Jesus, we could just live from a, a sense of knowing God loves me. How do I know God loves me? Number one, he's just a loving God. Number two, he created me out of love. Number three, he sent Jesus to die out of love. And if that's not enough to convince you, this is what you'll think. If God loves me, I'll get this job. If God loves me, I'll get this car. If God loves me, my marriage will be different. If, and it's like, if he hasn't convinced you yet, those things will not convince you. It's crazy how we put 
God's love and we hang it on other people rather than actually hanging it on the actions of God. If you can get to the point where you're living out of affirmation instead of to achieve or earn affirmation, you'll find that you get, become very grounded and very rooted and very anchored in God's love. You'll find that you don't get swayed by pleasing other people or trying to impress people or uh, trying to keep everyone happy, but uh, you'll, you'll find that like you just, you know, okay, I'm loved. Even if I screw up, even if I make the wrong decision, even if I don't get this right, God's love for me is already settled. Jesus has already been crucified. So if I screw this up, God's not gonna go back in time and be like, ha, I didn't know you were gonna screw up like that. That's already a, a fixed historical event that our screw-ups and sins are not gonna go back and undo. So his love for us fuels us and it gives us peace, it relieves anxiety, and it helps us to actually serve other people because we know we're loved and so now we're not serving other people to get some sort of like uh, affirmation because we've already had the affirmation. I mean, so many places in the Bible where it says God's, you know, John three sixteen, God so loved the world, right? So many places, uh, Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So if you feel like you're condemned or damned, if you're in Jesus, you're not. So that feeling is not even theologically correct. A lot of our feelings aren't theologically correct. I mean, it's, it's so evident, Jesus is the proof that God loves you. And we should be just overflowing from that. So here's how I would like to respond. I'm going to ask Rachel to come up and play guitar for us. I would like to pray through those three things, the humility of Jesus, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, the affirmation of God the Father. Maybe you need all three of those things, or maybe there's one or two that really kind of like stand out as a need for you. So I just want to walk us through that for a moment. Um, as we go into 2021, I've mentioned this a couple times, I think there is a, either a lie or a misunderstanding or maybe it's just people are trying to be optimistic like that when at the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve, all of our troubles will disappear. I don't know. I've had 39 New Year's Eves. The troubles never disappear. Um, Let's go into 2021, instead of waiting for our circumstances to just improve, let's go into 2021 making some commitments for our souls that we're gonna be humble. We're gonna go into 2021 humble. That will actually make 2021 better. More humility would make the whole year better. Let's go into 2021 relying on the Holy Spirit for empowerment. That will make the whole year better. If we do things in the power of the Holy Spirit, not our own uh, strength and flesh. And let's go into 2021 living out of the place where we understand the Father's heart toward us and the Father's affirmation because of Jesus, where we're not trying to earn God's love because we realize he already loves us. If he didn't love us, he wouldn't have sent Jesus. So I'm gonna, we're going to just pray through each parts, part of that. So if the first one, the humility, is what strikes you, I want to give you just a moment, whether you're at home or here present, 
just privately humble yourself. You don't have to ask God to humble you. He's already given you that job. So maybe you're identifying the the obstacles to humility. Maybe you're identifying the specific experiences where you haven't been humble. Just take a couple seconds and take that to God and humble yourself before him. Jesus, we humble ourselves before you. You tell us to do this. We want to put ourselves right where you put us. All of our significance comes from you. All of our value comes from you. We have worth because we're created in your image. That's what gives us worth. So Lord, we're dirt. We're made from the dirt and we'll become dirt again someday, but we're dirt that was made in your image. So There is something that's human about that and natural, but there's also something that's spiritual, that you created us in your image. Jesus, I ask that you would give us a discontentment with our own flesh. Lord, where we should be hungry for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, but instead we're satisfi- satisfied to do things in our own strength, God. I pray that you would give us a, a discontentment with what we can a- achieve in our own power, God. Lord, I pray that you would expose that lie that says, just dig deeper, just suck it up and walk it off. All of that just leads us to do stuff on our own strength. And would you lead us to a life where we are just overflowing with the, the love of God and the work of God in us, Jesus, where the, the Holy Spirit is just naturally overflowing from us. And if that's something that you need, I want to give you a couple moments just to you know, kind of receive and prepare yourself for that.
And then uh, as it relates to living from God's affirmation, what he says about us. So when Jesus is baptized and God said, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. I think that in that moment, that was specifically applied to Jesus. But what we see applied to us is in the epistles. So 1 John 3 says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. So in this passage, we're the beloved, we're the children. When Jesus appears, we'll become like him because we'll see him just as he is. So Lord, we want to live from a place of having already received affirmation and encouragement and value and you not trying to earn it by our good behaviors or good deeds or religiosity, Jesus. We... You've already told us you love us. We don't have to try to twist your arm or impress you to say that. You've already shown us in Jesus that you love us. We don't need a promotion or a bigger house for you to show that you love us. When good things come, you already loved us. When bad things come, you already love us. Help us to not find our affirmation in our circumstances. If that's something that you need heading into the next year, I want to give you a moment to pray through that. Next week, we're going to look at the temptation of Jesus and this incredible story where he withstands temptation, doesn't fall for anything that devil ha- the devil plans for him. But I just want to tell you now, it was the baptism that prepared him to withstand the temptation. Is that humility where Jesus didn't feel the need to prove himself to Satan. It was the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that gave him the strength to withstand that temptation. It was the fact that he knew God already loved him. He didn't have to prove that God had chosen him. He already knew God had chosen him. All of that stuff, it just disarms temptation in our lives. What's, what's Satan have to manipulate us with? If we already know that God loves us and we have the power of the Holy Spirit and we're humble, what possible weak spot could we have after that? So as, as we go this week, you don't have to wait. To, to hear that sermon, you just read Matthew 4 and prepare yourself. But as temptations come this week, this, the, this little experience we had at the end of the sermon should strengthen us and prepare us 
to face those trials. So I want to pray for us and then dismiss us. Jesus, thank you for providing strength through the example of your baptism, through the example of humility, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, knowing that God loves us, that you've provided provided for us strength to withstand temptation. You give us identity. You give us power. You, you help us understand where we fit in the story in humility. So we bless you, Jesus, and I ask that you would just sear this into our hearts and our minds this week, that we would recall your baptism, that we would even review this in our reading this week, and I pray that in Jesus' name.